Hi there, my name is Paddy Butler, and this podcast is brought to you from Liberia, a bookshop by Second Home. This week, we have Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and utter gent Ian Urbina in for a chat. Having cumulatively spent three years at sea documenting many injustices, including trafficking, slavery, and illegal fishing, the heroic author discusses his incredible book, The Outlaw Ocean. Such a cool guy, so stay put to hear his stories. Some really crazy stuff in there as well. As always, a quick rundown of some reading treats. Staying on the investigative journalist tip, another Pulitzer Prize winner, She Said by Jody Cantor and Megan Tuhi, the New York Times journalist who pursued and subsequently broke the Weinstein story. For months, they had to face down his team of high-priced vendors and even his private investigators to ensure this was reported. So again, pretty heroic, seriously inspiring stuff there. Overstory by Richard Paris. Now we're going a little bit towards the fiction uh, end of stuff. Again, this won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction, but Naomi Klein has been telling us to read it for quite a while. And Margaret Atwood says it is not possible for Paris to write an uninteresting book. So how about that for praise? Centered around our attitude and understanding of trees, it's also worth having a look at the late Roger Deakins' Wildwood, which is, besides from being a beautifully written book, it is the author's humanity which is so affecting. I mean, personally, it's, it's got to be one of my favorites. So sad and so tragic to lose him. Kind of like uh, my other hero in that regard, Robert McFarlane. Special mention on Naomi Klein, On Fire, is her latest book. Just grab it and, and read it again. You know, within that, she recommends. Uh, Richard Powers over stories. So yeah, check that out. The, the last one that I want to recommend, Jared Diamond, Upheaval. I'm not so much recommending this as recommending Niall Ferguson's review of the book in the Times Literary Supplement. Now, whatever your you know opinion is on Ferguson, he kind of divides, shall we say, opinion. I think this is a really instructive read on you know the importance of history as a discipline. And he has much to say on Diamond's latest book. I mean, he, he he loves Diamond, but yeah, it's go read it, go check it out. But yeah, let's go and have a chat with the brilliant Ian Urbina. Great, Ian Urbina, brilliant to have you here for the Libria podcast. Um, the Outlaw Ocean. Tell us about it. Let's 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 discuss this mammoth uh, project. I mean, it's absolutely fantastic. But I mean, you're an investigative journalist by trade. New York Times. How did this come about, though? Because you know, subject matter before has been quite varied, and for this to come on the horizon or on your desk, you know, how did it come about? Um, so I always wanted to do this project. Um, even before I joined the paper, I had worked on a ship um, prior to becoming a, a journalist, and I kind of was fascinated by the space, uh, the sort of the distant waters of the high seas, um, but also the people who work out there. Um, and I had pitched this idea, the idea being, let's go out, let's report from within the space on these ships, and let's chronicle the diversity of sort of extra legal behavior that's happening out there, good, bad, and everything in between. And um, I had pitched it to a bunch of editors, and they all sort of looked at me like I was insane. Mm-hmm. It was too expensive, take too long, kind of dangerous, mm-hmm. you know. And then I finally um, hit on the right editor, and she uh, 
embraced it. And so that began a two year series in the newspaper and then okay. the book out of that. Okay. And with that, they were happy to to back you on that. Did you have to initially do some groundwork, you know, kind of lay, lay it out how, how you were, you were going to actually do this? Or was it kind of like a free reign? Look, Ian, just go out there. Mm. And, and, and uh, Yeah, so typically what would happen in my relationship with my editor would be every six, nine, 12 months, she'd say, so what's your next big story or series mm -hmm. of stories? I'd come in with some ideas and I sort of normally had that conversation. Um, I knew it was coming, but this time I didn't know it was coming and she sort of sprung it on me and I whipped out Old Faithful, you know, kind of mm. this idea I had hatching for a while. And um, I was shocked that she said, sure, write me a memo, yeah. which means you've gotten to the second, you know, across the first hurdle. Okay. And it's the tallest hurdle to get across. And the memo stage is usually what might be, or, you know, catalog of story ideas that you can imagine tackling. And I wrote 10 ideas and then she whittled it down to the five she liked. And then we took it up to the executive editor and he said, start with these three. Okay, brilliant. Um, Thunder, I mean, we, we, we enter right into it with the, I guess infamous or famous chase this this vessel thunder an illegal trawler um, you you immediately get a tip you I think you travel straight to Ghana mm -hmm. if I remember correctly right. and you you have contacts there and they help you you're invited also to 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 come aboard Sea Shepherd can you tell us about Sea Shepherd the background because mm -hmm. that's the vessel that's going after thunder. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the Thunder, you know, sort of context here is at the time kind of the world's most wanted ship. You know, it's on this thing called the Purple List, which means it's kind of a bad actor that, you know, international authorities say is worthy of arrest on site. Um, but no one's doing much about it. Um, and Sea Shepherd, uh, this conservationist direct action, sort of vigilante by their own description organization that has a fleet of ships and polices the oceans, um, says we're going to um, go after these guys mm. and we're going to prove that they can be found and then we're going to chase them, we're not going to ram them, we're not going to board them, but we're going to harass them and um, draw a lot of media attention every time they come into someone's port. And so I get wind of it um, a couple months into the chase and mm. um, you know, through a lot of pushiness, uh, uh, get that Sea Shepherd to grant me permission to come on board and then the next challenge is the logistics of we are kind of in the middle of a chase and we can't peel off and pick you up and we're hundreds of miles at sea. So, And there were two Sea Shepherd vessels pursuing the Thunder mm -hmm. sort of in tandem. Mm -hmm. The Bob Barker and the Sam Simon were the names of the ships. And so we uh, worked out this whole complicated um, method to get me on board. Mm. And you, you, Yeah, I mean, it's quite, just to give further background, I mean, this vessel, Thunder, we're talking about something like 60 million in, in, in you know, revenue, legal fishing. Um, but also for, for listeners as well, Sea Shepherd is a kind of, um, it's to do, it's not directly to do with Greenpeace. It's an offshoot, isn't it? And it was, it, it was set up by this kind of maverick figure. Um, is it Paul Watson? That's is that right. his name? Yeah. Yeah. Tell us about him. What's his deal? Because he's kind of interesting. He spent time in jail in, mm -hmm. in, in Germany mm -hmm. as well, didn't he? For for kind of very radical. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of why he left Greenpeace, wasn't it? That's right. Yeah. So Paul Watson is this um, 
Canadian who uh, was involved uh, with the founding members of Greenpeace, um, but uh, grew frustrated with what he saw as uh, their insufficient fervor mm -hmm. and um, their um, unwillingness to be more aggressively direct action. Um, he, you know, sort of tried the organization's patience and kind of um, getting in the face of various, you know, um, adversaries over the years and in a culminating incident, um, you know, got in a fist fight with someone who was in the process of clubbing seals, which in the context was legal, but to Paul's eyes, uh, unethical and um, scandalous and uh, Greenpeace um, kicked him out. And Paul um, created... Uh, sea Shepherd uh, to really define itself in contrast to Greenpeace, mm -hmm. to engage in much of the same conservation type work, mm -hmm. but to do so in a more aggressive fashion. Mm -hmm. And Sea Shepherd um, is a really well-funded, a lot of Hollywood money behind it. Mm -hmm. um, and they have a fleet of ships and um, are best known for um, their anti-whaling work mm -hmm. and really aggressive kind of ramming tactics um, going up against whalers. But this mission... Uh, the chase of the thunder, in my view, sort of represented a, a different chapter in what wow. they were willing to do. They were they worked with Interpol and they even worked with fishing companies where historically they hadn't done that before and they opted not to ram the ship where they could have. And so this was sort of a, a different thing for Sea Shepherd. Do you think that was led by Watson? Was he recalibrate? Was he pulling back, do you think, from the more aggressive thing or, or, or the more aggressive tactic? Was he do you think guided by a, a more publicity orientated? I think that, um, so, so there's a new generation which was well represented by the captains of those two ships, okay. a guy named Sid uh, Chakavarti and, and um, Peter Hammerstedt, mm -hmm. a Swedish guy and an Indian guy. Very young guys. Young guys, well. yeah, and they're in their 20s, late 20s and 30s. Extraordinary. Yeah, really impressive characters, smart, more nuanced, sort of a new batch of Sea Shepherd leadership. Mm. And I think those guys um, really led this new phase. I think everything had to be approved by Paul and the, the CEO and the board. And so it's not just those guys, but the Sea Shepherd as an organization um, has seen a transformation okay. in a lot of ways. And I think um, Paul has um, backed that, um, if not driven it. Okay, right, interesting. So how long were you on Sea Shepherd for in this pursuit? Two weeks. Okay. And yeah. did you did you cross like the Roaring Fort? Did you go through like the, I, I think you described the southern tip of South America? Even is it the Roaring Fifties? Even I mean, you're talking about two hundred mile an hour winds. Uh, crazy. Did you go? Did you actually? Go? So so um, I the the beginning of their campaign was down in that stretch. Mm. I found out that it was ongoing after they had already left that part. Mm -hmm. So I was not on board as they crossed that treacherous zone. Mm -hmm. And they cross it in an especially treacherous way because normally ships, there's this strip that you refer to, which is the only place on the planet where uh, there's no land uh, for waves and wind circumventing the globe to be obstructed by and slowed down by. And so the winds and the waves are just bigger than anywhere on the planet down there. And ships long have known that, and you know, the low pressure systems, the storms are just mm. mad fierce and um, ships always wait and slip between them. Okay. And in this case, the thunder during the chase opted to try to lose its tail yeah. um, by going straight into a storm. I was not on board. I, 
on a separate subsequent reporting trip, I went through the, that zone um, and sort of experienced what um, those waters are like, which is intense. Um, yeah, what is, what, can you describe it? What is, what is it like? I mean, are we, are we talking about 90 kind of foot waves even? I didn't I see, mean, the, so, so 90 foot waves are not um, unusual down there. Um, uh, um, I was not on board uh, the, the ship when we were not hit by those. We saw 50 foot waves, um, which are still ma massive yeah. things. Um, and even on a huge ship like I was on, um, which is a, a Chilean sea bass, the very, the very type of ship that the Thunder was, I was actually on subsequently a, Chile, a Chilean um, legal mm. um, uh, toothfish vessel. And that's when I went through that zone um, to cover a different story. Um, but yeah, the winds are just epic and the water is huge and really unpredictable. Um, uh, and the temperatures sort of vary in strange swings. Um, it just feels sort of like you're not on the planet anymore. You're kind of on a different planet and all the rules are gone. Rules of physics, rules of time, rules of weather, they don't apply here. Jeez. How do you deal with that? How do you mentally, you know, I mean, you talk about that a lot throughout the book, and it is quite fascinating, the human element of the mental um, ability for seafarers to turn off. Now, whether they turn off or not is, is, is another thing. But how do you, as not a seafarer who's you know, how do you prepare for these sort of a, these kind of crazy situations, whether it's the environment or whether it's, you know, facing a human threat, mm. an individual human threat? How do you prepare for that sort of thing? Is it, is it, is it, is it just practice? <laughs> yeah, I think, um, I think, uh, um, so the, these reporting trips mm. vary, right? Okay. So what I'll be encountering in Somalia is, really different than Indonesia, than Taiwan, than Antarctica. Mm. Um, they all have certain common denominators. One is um, really a grind in terms of lack of sleep and sort of constant unpredictability and corralling of a team, a photographer, mm. a fixer, mm. a translator, and logistical sprints at all times. And that gets really exhausting and you kind of have to keep an eye on that stuff because that's how you'll get sick and collapse. Okay. Um, uh, do you mean by a mental collapse? Do you think? Yeah, yeah. mentally. Okay. Yeah, I think you'll just, uh, if you go that hard for two weeks and aren't monitoring it, you okay. you just end up getting, you know, sick or yeah. just worn out. And um, uh, I think that emotionally, you also have to keep an eye on how you're doing too long from home and, and to seeing too much of something. Um, uh, can catch up with you. And there were a couple moments in the five years that took the book um, where I realized I was on an edge that wasn't safe okay. emotionally. Um, was that around the time when you were documenting the sea slavery, that sort of thing? Because mm -hmm. that, I mean, even reading about that myself in the book, mm -hmm. it is quite, yeah, it's emotionally draining, draining yeah. you know? Yeah, that... So there were two stints of that reporting. There was the initial stint, which and it was the first trip I took on the series in the paper. Mm -hmm. And it was an especially long one and it had a ridiculously ambitious goal of mm -hmm. getting on a sea slave vessel, mm -hmm. you know, which I thought, oh, it's not so hard. Mm -hmm. And 
five weeks later when we were still trying to convince captains to take us out, it was just like, oh, this is really a grind. And mm -hmm. the, the paper was saying, come home. And I was saying, I'm not coming, you know, I'm, I'm going to get this done. Um, and then once you succeed, you're already pretty worn down and then you're succeeding. So you get amped up by the adrenaline of it all and mm -hmm. you push yourself harder and, and it opens all sorts of subsequent questions that result in weeks more reporting. Mm -hmm. And um, that was a grind. That okay. was a grind emotionally. And then the second um, trip was a long one. It was more predictable. I knew what to expect and I had more, I had clearer goals. Um, but uh, I almost, that was almost the problem because I packed the trip so intense. I wanted to get so much done and we're going to go, we're going to fly for two days to Burma and then we're going to, you know, and mm. um, we're going to be at sea on this type of vessel. And then we're going to get off on this atoll and then we're going to get on another vessel. And and um, uh, that was perilous in its own sense. Okay, yeah. Um, and a lot of that investigation, it takes part in a certain part of the world. It seems to me that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but from the book, the, what I take from it is that Cambodia and Indonesia, uh, Myanmar, South Asia in general, seems to be a place, you know, it seems to be quite concentrated in, in terms of trafficking, uh, exploitation, all, all of those things. Is this, this is an economic factor, obviously, but is, 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 it that, is it that kind of extra legal thing that you're talking about throughout the book as well with regards to the, the ocean and, you know, a kind of a no man's land sort of free for all? Is there, is there an element of that? Or is it more, is, is it more kind of, is it more kind of prone to that around those areas, I guess? So, so I think that um, the trafficking, the sea slavery issue mm. is well told on the South China Sea, mm. um, partially because of certain distinct factors about those countries, um, which I'll go into. Um, the big problem is a lot, of, a lot of the attention has been on there as if it's only there. And um, in fact, say the Ouyang chapter, mm. the Scofflaw feet, yeah. is about New Zealand's waters and the South Korean vessels and horrific stuff happening there. The same basic issues, you know. Mm. And you look off the coast of the Falkland Islands or Malvinas Islands, um, and uh, you see a lot of the same issues playing out there. And so you don't have to look far, West African coast, you'll find a lot of these issues, um, not to mention the Chinese fleet, right? So. But South China Sea and the Thai fleet in particular are perfect poster childs because of a perfect storm of factors in that you have this bloated 50,000 boat fleet um, that is the Thai fleet. It's sort of under-automated, really barely seaworthy, should have been retired a long time ago vessels, but they're still you know, kind of scrapping along. They're subsidized by the government to some degree. No one, no ties want to work those jobs. There's still some money to be made, but not great money, so not enough to, for upkeep. Oh, but neighboring countries have massive numbers of desperately poor, mm. um, easily bamboozled migrant workers mm. that you can pull into this trafficking pipeline, Laos, Cambodia, Myanmar. Mm. And so that sort of spells a really bad situation where, you know, tens of thousands of these guys get pulled into this industry in awful conditions. And that's the perfect storm that makes that fleet and that place um, really susceptible to these issues. Okay, and that also is, is you touch on the Asian tiger aspect as well, that kind of huge explosion, economic explosion, and that's kind of where there's, I suppose, a, a dearth of uh, able 
people to, to go out onto the sea and it's kind of like it almost draws away all the kind of investment as well as you say into those you know making it a, a proper industry isn't yeah i think like the so the economics of seafood are that because seafood consumption globally mm. in the eu but also especially in asia has skyrocketed um there's still a market for these things um, and there are these weird niche markets that have emerged, like fish meal and you know these omega three supplements, and that are massive players in why there are so many boats on the water. On the one hand, on the other hand, you have overfishing that causes the nearshore stocks to to crash, and there aren't really many fish to be caught nearshore. So that means boats are having to go really far away. Fuel is expensive, mm. so the profit potential. Um, gets constrained by that factor. So all these things mean that the boats stay hobbling along, mm. but they're going really far away in really bad conditions, and the locals don't want to work those jobs. Mm. It's already a brutal job if you come back every three days. It's a really brutal job mm. if you come back every three months, not to mention three years. So all those factors mean that you know it becomes this grind that's prone to sea slavery. The other thing, just to go back to Sea Shepherd and Greenpeace and those sort of organizations, they're, they are, they're crucial. I mean, you're not uncritical of them as well and some of their methods, but they seem to me crucial in the sense that you have these, you have, you have countries or yeah, states that can only police a certain area of the ocean. And also their jurisdiction is... I mean, I don't know, you tell me 200 miles maybe off the coast, but maybe not even that, depending mm. on individual state and constitution. Um, these, the Greenpeace, therefore, that's where they, they, they're they kind of crucial, isn't it? Like, because these extra legal areas, ocean areas are, it's a, again, a free for all for vessels to, to illegally fish, tooth fish, that sort of thing. And it's only when they come back into port then that, they might be even, you know, uh, contested or, mm -hmm. or, or legally kind of um, investigated. Um, is there enough? There's there's never really going to be enough resources, is there, for Greenpeace and the, and Sea Shepherd and, and the likes to to go out? Is it a losing game? I think so. Yeah, okay. I, I didn't want to answer that, but it feels like the truthful one. Sorry. Um, no, I mean I, I share your pessimism. Um, I think that uh, there is, well, a couple of things you said. Number one, there are national and international waters, right? And most countries in the world can't even police their national waters. They have not the boats, they don't have navies or coast guards, and if they do, they don't have the budgets to keep the fuel or the manpower or the training to do real enforcement work. Mm -hmm. So you have these NGOs that are um, actually increasingly um, working with governments to try to police those waters, but it's really hit or miss, you know. Okay. So just got back from the Gambia, where Sea Shepherd again um, in West Africa has been doing a lot of this sort of ride-along work, where they bring in their ships, they team up with Senegal, Liberia, Ga the Gambia, they work with the the fisheries ministry and the naval officers. Um, and they bring officers on board and then they patrol for a while and they catch some illegal fishers, mm -hmm. usually foreign vessels. They make high profile arrests, they bring them into port, there's press releases, et cetera, et cetera. But, and it's, it's good sh 
theater. And it has a point. I'm not being dismissive in calling it that, but it is ultimately just theater because then C. Shepherd goes, you know, and um, the the um, illegal vessels know that they're mm. it's open rain again. Um, so it's not sustainable to expect NGOs to be doing go- work that only governments can do. Um, on the flip side, you know, the, just to be try to be optimistic a little bit, you know, there are. Um, you know, in the era of big data drones and satellites, you know, there are cost-saving tactics that um, are out there that can help significantly in policing without having boats mm. constantly, you know, patrol mm. cars essentially on yeah. the water, um, but eyes in the sky that are catching, watching, documenting, and then when these boats come into port, then you nab them. But, you know, those tactics are limited too because m- most countries are not that interested in cooperating with that. So the, the thunders of the world come into port, unload, go back out mm-hmm. to sea, and no one bothers them. And there's a lot of corruption as well at the middle. Yeah, yeah. there's huge money at stake, and a lot of the places that are receiving these boats are desperately poor and in need of revenue and taxes to fight HIV yeah. or ISIS or yeah. build roads or whatever it is. Yeah. And they're not about to turn away the revenue that, you know, this Chinese boat operator is about to put in their budget. It could be the whole budget for the fisheries ministry for the year, you know? Yeah. Um, so it's it's not an easy question. Well, actually, yeah, that, that leads on to the, the next part, I guess, um, the, and the other side of Africa, um, east and the, the Gulf of Arden, where you found yourself in, in a very sticky situation. You were in Somalia, and unbeknownst to you, it, the febrile nature of politics at that time. I mean, you were kind of, you had this idea beforehand. You you weren't naive. You weren't like under the illusion that it was as calm as it as it was being as portrayed, you know, re- yeah. portrayed or reports are saying. Yeah, tell us about that because you're going over there to look at the fi- again fishy fishing. Illegal fishing, I think it is, off the coast. Mm-hmm. Again, there's that cultural dynamic with uh, uh, Somalia, and that's how, you know, with regards to fishing on the coast and also the, the, the lack of resources to, for Somalis to, to undertake that properly. They resort eventually to piracy, which was, is well documented, and, you know, we, we, we saw that. But that, that could, when you got there, it, it the piracy seems to have, um, I, it, it wasn't as prevalent, if, mm-hmm. if I understand correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, but tell us about that, 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 that situation. when you So, so the Somali trip was one that started out um, with the ambition of telling a good news story. Mm-hmm. And the good news story was, here's a, a war-ravaged, desperately poor, famine-prone state, which is barely even a functioning state. You know, the federal authorities in Mogadishu barely control the city limits of Mogadishu, much less the rest of the country. Mm. Um, However, there seem to be some successes. Number one, Somali piracy, as we know from Captain Phillips, in that form um, that really upticked in 2008 had more or less downgraded and was under control for various reasons, Mm. seemingly and actually. And um, number two, um, there had recently been this high profile arrest of repeat, a repeat bad actor, you know, illegal fishing vessel that had been pillaging Somali waters and offloading in Kenya. Mm -hmm. And the Kenyans and the Somalis 
authorities who rarely play nice had cooperated and they had locked these, they they'd, um, nabbed these ships called the Greco 1 and the Greco 2. And I thought, well, this is interesting. Let's go there and look at how that happened and might this be a ray of hope. Mm. Um, everything went upside down. Um, uh, and um, I kind of wanted to look at not just Somalia, but specifically at this, um, the, the most lawless state within Somalia, Puntland, which is the horn of the rhinoceros mm. horn, that is the horn of Africa, mm. um, sort of across from Yemen, where all sorts of stuff happens, you know, militants fighting in Yemen, the illegal cot trade, human trafficking, arms trafficking, mm. a lot of the piracy was being launched in there. So it's just sort of a real Western badass place. Yeah. Um, and I thought, uh, let's get, to, let's go to Puntland. That's where the Grecos were um, doing their bad stuff. So let's go there, report, and let's also look at some of the private security players that are in the mix here and what they're about. Long story short, we got there. We had sort of blessing of local tribal leaders and local authorities on the inbound, but um, there were these really sketchy Thai ships that were there in those waters around the same time that hightailed out of Puntland's waters when they heard we were coming. Mm. And the local officials kept being super aggressive and nervous to ensure that we were not going to look at these ships. And that's a terrible move with an investigative reporter. You yeah. know, it's like, don't look here, don't look here, don't look here. Okay, now since you've said it three times, I have to look there. It is my duty. And lo and behold, um, I kind of was curious to find out what's going on with those Thai ships. Um, I began asking questions. I quickly fell out of favor with local authorities and things went south. And, you know, we were told to get out of Puntland and our security detail was largely removed and we were getting lots of reports that we were in real jeopardy and we got stranded essentially we being fabio my photographer and i and a fixer i brought with me um and we got stuck in puntland and sort of had to hide out until one, of, one of the your fixers was was also relaying the information back to the authorities wasn't he unbeknownst to you ah uh, yes so it's two separate fixers here the one you're referring to was a guy that was sort of a double agent mm. um I should be a little careful about going okay. into too much for his sake, but okay. he was playing both sides. Um, I still communicate with him, but yeah, he was he was a, a, a minder, mm. and he was the government assigned translator that was provided to us to keep mm. an eye on us. Mm. Um, and I knew he was feeding information back. I brought um, a fishmonger, a Western uh, Westerner who lives over there and knew all the key players in Somalia. He's based in Kenya, and he. Uh, could open certain doors for me, and I brought him with me, and so that's the fixture I was referring to. He uh, doesn't okay. get discussed much in the book because um, he still is in that line of work. And, okay, yeah. fair enough. Yeah, and then uh, you're, you've, it gets really intense. You're in the hotel, and there's there's talk of you're communicating with the outside. The outside is saying, "Gosh, you need to get out of there. That yeah, mean, this is this could be coup-like territory." And the message you were getting also was that. You know, there was suspicion amongst um, the Somalis that you were CIA. <laughs> yeah, CIA. no, it was just so surreal. <laughs> the stuff of movies. Um, so we were being told that we had we were firmly PNG, persona non grata, mm. so um, marked. Um, we had protection from a very amazing, trustworthy local tribal 
leader mm -hmm. who was providing us with our protection and stuck by us the whole time. But within his ranks, we were being told there's some folks who are sympathetic to the local mm -hmm. government and were a risk to us. They, they might kill us. Um, and then furthermore, that the going theory was that um, we were there as CIA agents that were trying to instigate um, a coup of the local president, the, the Puntland president. Mm -hmm. And again, I where, you know, from their perspective, we've got these two Westerners who are in a place where there are virtually no other Westerners. They have a drone with them that yeah. we're putting up on the rooftops. They walk around in khakis and <laughs> navy blue shirts um, with guys with guns. And you had um, an iPhone with a, with a tracker. Uh, yeah, they on have technology <laughs> that doesn't make sense. They've got, you know, the ability to look and see where these Thai vessels are just on their iPhone. You know, all stuff that you or I, it's public access, but most folks in that yeah. part don't know how to use this stuff. And so you can see why they might suspect that these guys are spooks, you totally, know, totally. Um, and should be punted, if not um, worse. Mm. Uh, the flip side was, you know, I explained everything and that wasn't really getting me anywhere. And we'd also, you know, they said, look, you're under house arrest. You need to stay at the compound. And I said to Tigay, my the guy who was running yeah. security and my. I said, he was brilliant. In he that was great. No, he's the reason I'm yeah. alive. Um, yeah. And Tigay, I said, Tigay, I'm, I can't stay here. We have to go out on the water and try to do what we're supposed to do. So he said, okay, done. You know, I told, gave you my word that I would give you full access to whatever you want and give you protection. Mm -hmm. So if you want to go out on the water and try to get to this private military vessel, then we'll do it. And so he got his most trustworthy guys, got us on a boat, and off we went. Um, so, but the government knew within 20 minutes, they knew as we left the port that we were doing that. And so... You know, again, we were really bucking their authority. We were looking into things they didn't want us to look into. We just had very different interests at that point. Um, so I don't, in some ways, fault them, although some of the players I really do. They were deeply dishonest. Um, the head of fisheries mm. um, is really the person who was propagating the whole CIA mm. um, myth. And so it got very dodgy in the last 48 hours that we were hiding out. You know, I was getting texts on my sat phone you need to get out of there and there are no flights and you can't travel by road because Al-Shabaab and ISIS control all the roads around there. And, yeah. you know, I thought, okay, and there were bombs going off, you know, right outside our gates. And I thought, okay, this is, this is bad. This is really bad. And we only had three guys at that point on the roof because we had to get rid of everyone else. We had about a dozen and a half at one point on guards, uh, but we couldn't figure out who to trust them. So we only took T and his cousins essentially and said, make everyone else go and have them think that we're staying in our room. Don't let them know that we're actually going to, hide up, up on the roof so that if they come to the room, we won't be there, um, but we'll be up on the roof. And TK said, okay, we'll, I'll be with you and we'll bring these guys. I know they're legit. Yeah. And they, just before that, before you go up onto the roof, the manager comes up and, and you answer the door and he hands you a Glock. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So the manager, TK, uh, I trusted TK. And, you know, the transitive power of trust in journalism. You yes, know. you refer to that. That's a great line. I love that. I stole that from a from a, another reporter, Jeffrey Gettleman, bureau chief for the Times in it's Nairobi. Such, it's, it's so apt, it's, isn't it? It is really apt. And it's all you have to work with. If you trust this guy and he trusts that guy, then you're probably going to have to trust that guy. And, you know, kind of it degrades the further down the chain you go, but <laughs> it's all you got. And um, uh, But um, Tigay trusted the head of security at the compound. The head of the security, and so Tigay tipped him in as to our plan about mm -hmm. hiding out. 
And the head of security kind of came to my room as we were going to slip out of there and yeah. make it look like we were still in there. And he handed me this wad of rags and said, open, open, you know. And I thought it was a gift or something, the way his body language, and I unwrapped it and it was a loaded Glock. And he said, you need to have this. And, you know, journalists can't be in the business of carrying guns. That's the surest way to get killed. So I gently, um, I, I checked it to see if it was loaded because I just, from a writing perspective, I needed to know. Yeah. Um, you know, and I inspected it closely to see what year it was. I was super curious about what he was handing me, but, uh, but then I gave it back. Yeah, you were. I mean, that was great reasoning because yeah, you're, you're you'd be target number one. I mean, you're 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 setting yourself yeah. up, aren't especially you? if they're already thinking they're CIA stage. and now yeah. you've got a gun. It's like, okay, I don't even believe myself anymore. <laughs> Brilliant. The last question, or well, I guess just to round it up, I guess um, it's you know a lot of this uh, project. I see it as you know a lot of it is to do with the environment, and we are facing a, a, you know this climate crisis and you know, political inaction is a, is a huge part. There is there is part of the book where you are this it, hearteningly. You know, you're in South America, in Amazon mm-hmm. basin, and you know, there's prospectors, oil prospectors there. Dishearteningly, you you highlight the fact that you know, in, I think it was 2016. Was it? 49 environmentalists were murdered or That's killed right. That's or right. related, yeah. um, right. um, which is brutal. And I think within the space, I mean, that's that's just one year. And I think in the space of like six or seven years, it's, it's yeah, it's double. It's, yeah, the most dangerous place on the planet to be an environmentalist is Brazil. Uh, crazy stuff. I didn't, I, I didn't know about that. But um, Greenpeace are down there and there, there's... It, I didn't know this either that there's a coral reef in the Amazon basin, if that's correct. And they, in the end, long story short, they saved, they they protected it, or they were able to protect it in the end from from drilling. That that must be like, I mean, for you to 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 write this book, uh, that is such a, it's such an important text in in that sense. Like you know, because you are highlighting these environmental catastrophes, whether it's overfishing or, you know, uh, oil prospecting in, in, in the deep ocean. Um, yeah, do you want to reflect on that? Like, you know, it, it, does it, does it, I, I, I mean, there are a lot of books coming out, environment, climate change books. It's, it's so important, isn't it? Like, this is so important that mm-hmm. we do this, you know? Was that, I mean, was, that must have been running through your mind the whole, whole way through as well, no? I actually, so I thought in that David and Goliath fight, Goliath was going to crush David, mm-hmm. you know, um, and the, the David and Goliath there, um, Greenpeace was the arms dealer to David. Okay. Um, so in the sense that um, the David there were these Brazilian scientists who wanted to simply document what was at stake in drilling occurring off the coast of, planned drilling to occur off the coast of Brazil. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to... Um, document what species were there, and they wanted to check the environmental impact assessment, the paperwork that the government had required the company to do, but had no ability to check. Mm-hmm. And so they simply wanted to do what academics want to do, is sort of ground truth stuff. And But they didn't have a boat. They didn't have a sub. They had no ability to accomplish this. And Greenpeace shows up and sort of arms the scientists to do what they want to do. And I thought, okay, so it's the scientists versus the drillers, mm-hmm. the protectors uh, versus the... 
um, those who want to tap the resources, mm. to use non-pejorative terms. Mm. Um, and so, um, but I thought there's no way that these guys are going to succeed mm. in getting in the water, documenting stuff, and possibly slowing up the plan here because it's already been signed by the Brazilian government. Mm. So I actually never really believed it would go the way it went. Mm. But ultimately, you know, through lots of curves, um, the Brazilian government first said that these guys could put the sub in the water and go document and film the coral reef that might be affected. And then the 11th hour, they changed their mind and said, no, you're not allowed to put the sub in the water. And then this scramble occurred. The sub went in the water. The documenting occurred. The paperwork was created to show, wait a minute, you guys, this environmental impact, this paperwork you've done is bullshit, excuse me. But, mm-hmm. um, and, um, uh, you know, there's a lot of science that says this is really risky. And that ended up succeeding in um, slowing up the drilling. Whether it'll still occur, especially under the current administration yeah. in Brazil, you know, we'll see. But it was a real success from the perspective of the scientists. And you're quite, it, it, uh, in terms of your practice as well, you're, you, you always follow up on these last, these, the, you know, your projects, which is really amazing. You know, you keep an eye on the situation. These situations. Maybe it's, it's I'd be more of... a productive journalist if I didn't do that because I'd put things down and move on to the next one. But yeah, I have a hard time not um, checking back and seeing where the story is now. Well, it's it's a brilliant story, and I have to say, congratulations and and Thank thanks you. for coming in to to talk about it with us. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Ian. Whoa, there you go. It's not every day you get to meet someone who puts your faith back into humanity, but Ian is certainly one of those guys, and you can hear it in his voice. Incredible stuff, incredible character. As always, check out secondhome.io for full cultural listings, and see you next time.